This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Live from everywhere USA, it's Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your host for today, Ben Dominich, in Jimmy Fela's seat. He still is out there being his normal, lovable, and chaos-creating self. Uh, and I'm happy to have you listening to me today as we wrap up what has been an incredible 2022. Incredible both in ways that were terrible and ways that were often entertaining. Uh, it seems very fitting that we end this year with uh, President Joe Biden meandering around uh, the island of St. Croix, interrupting his senility uh, with occasional responsibilities. Uh, they are apparently flying the omnibus bill down to meet him in St. Croix because he did not sign it before he left Washington, D.C. Now, I still have some questions about this. I'm wondering who is paying for it to fly down. I assume it's you and me. I'm wondering how much that's going to cost. I wonder how much that's going to set us back when it comes to the issue of climate, which obviously is one that Joe Biden normally espouses as being near and dear to him. And yet he couldn't hang around for another 24 hours to sign this bill before he started his St. Croix vacation at a donor's house. Uh, this is obviously a guy who's been on constant vacation, going to Delaware over and over and over again spending so much time out of D.C. Uh, that he has avoided any kind of, of questioning or sit-downs. You know, he has uh, single-digit interviews uh, in the past year, uh, fewer than any president in the modern era. This year also brought us, of course, you know, some very serious and horrible things. The war in Ukraine, the border chaos that continues and is only going to likely explode when Title 42 goes away, as we anticipate it doing so soon. Crime on the rise across the country, particularly in major cities where violent crime is an issue now in ways that it hasn't been for decades. We saw the overturning of Roe versus Wade, something that pro-life Americans had worked for for decades uh, and you know, finally achieved thanks to the nominations of uh, uh, President Trump, but also you know, President Bush, uh, who put uh, Sam Alito, who wrote the opinion, on the court. We saw the Supreme Court, though, thrown into crisis because of the leaking of that decision, which obviously put the lives of many of these conservative Supreme Court justices at serious risk as, as people thought about, uh, you know, intimidating them to change their minds about this and also, frankly, stooped to the level of actually threatening their lives in the case of, of one individual and others who, uh, you know, certainly helped that along as well by identifying where they lived uh, and where their children went to school. We saw the rise of all sorts of bioethical issues around the world, including, of course, the treatment of Chinese citizens, the lockdowns, and people literally being, you know, uh, firmly ensconced in their apartment, apartment complexes, uh, and actually, in some cases, sealed in, you know, by uh, people with all sorts of uh, different ways to, to seal the doors and keep them inside and their ludicrous zero COVID policy. But we also saw that closer to home in terms of uh, bioethical issues like the rise of euthanasia, in uh, Canada, where 
It is now one of the leading causes of death, even for cases where people are very clearly not seriously disabled or on the cusp of death themselves. We saw transportation failures uh, as a recurring issue in America, trucks, trains, airlines most recently, uh, but all flowing into uh, a real problem when it came to shortages when you came to your local uh, store when you would go into the grocery and see things that you were used to seeing restocked, uh, really absent in ways that were shocking to a lot of Americans who've gotten used to the idea that this was something you could just expect. What do you mean that you're completely out of such and such and you don't know when you'll get it? And then we also, of course, saw the damage of inflation, the the costs of many goods that made little sense to Americans uh, rising significantly. And as much as the White House would like to blame it on Vladimir Putin, on the war in Ukraine, or on tensions with China, uh, the simple fact is that a lot of this inflationary uh, situation is driven by the White House's own policies. The same legislative record that they touted as being so impressive, they compared him to LBJ and the like, Uh, it, it was also something that drove increased inflation across the board uh, for Americans. And you had the separate issue, of course, of high energy costs, which flowed into, you know, not just the way that people would fill up at the pump or would heat their homes, but also the costs of the goods that they are constantly ordering uh, to be uh, transported to their homes, uh, you know, with regularity. In the political sphere, we saw the triumph of Ron DeSantis, but we also saw the destruction of a number of Democrat hopefuls who have been recurring candidates uh, in statewide races. We saw, of course, Stacey Abrams go down again. We saw Beto O'Rourke go down again. We saw Tim Ryan go down. We saw Connor Lamb go down. We saw a number of these so-called moderate Democrats uh, who really have quite leftist records go down in these elections where incumbent Republicans or Republicans who were running to replace other Republicans were able to hold on to the seats. In fact, when it came to Senate elections, we saw only one seat flip in terms of the ownership of it, and that was in Pennsylvania, where you had another MAGA candidate unfortunately disappoint. In Dr. Oz, uh, you have his crudite to remember from this cycle. You have Herschel Walker's uh, fake police badge, and you have, of course, Carrie Lake vacuuming the red carpet uh, in Arizona. This is not uh, a cycle that was very good for candidates who were both endorsed by former President Trump and then tried to emulate his approach to running for office. Instead, the people who seemed to be most successful were those who, while they had Trump's backing, didn't necessarily need it, uh, and when they came to running their campaigns, did so in a very traditional fashion. I look you know, particularly to someone like Greg Abbott in Texas, who had an early vote strategy uh, and an approach to running for office that clearly emphasized his conservative credentials uh, and ended up curb stomping uh, Beto O'Rourke, perhaps for good. We'll see if they keep throwing money at that dream in the future from the left. And then, you know, you had the complete failure of another entity, and that was the January 6th committee, which has announced this week that it's rescinding its subpoena of former President Trump. The January 6th committee existed entirely as an approach that was designed uh, to mess with Donald Trump, to, you know, go after him in in targeted ways, and to make up, you know, uh, all sorts of reasons uh, why he could be targeted and prevented from running for election again. And yet it ultimately failed in that endeavor. It was unable, incapable of of really drawing out the kind of threads uh, that people would like. And as much as they might blast around on uh, on the, the networks of CNN and MSNBC the idea of blockbuster new testimony or 
amazing things that uh, you know were just coming to light that would totally change the way that people understood what was going on or what had gone on on January 6th. The truth is most people do understand what went on on January 6th. As much as they dislike what happened, as much as they dislike uh, the methods that were used by the protesters there that day, and the way that that day got out of control, they also have the ability to understand the difference between uh, something that was actually trying to get to some unknown truth and something that was simply about score settling uh, and partisan politics. In this case, Liz Cheney doing the work of Democrats who hope uh, to uh, really eradicate not just Donald Trump, but any of his supporters from their ability uh, to run for office in the future. Well, they failed at that. They're going to continue to fail at that. And then, you know, you had the the world of celebrity and the world of sports and things along those lines. You had the World Cup, which if you were interested in it, good for you. If you had uh, you had the, the whole, you know, uh, play out of one of the most crazy, you know, comebacks in terms of Tom Brady retiring, then coming back, then having his comeback apparently contribute to his divorce, divorce from Giselle. You had within the space of Hollywood, Tom Cruise reassert himself as the last great movie star, someone who, you know, is not just a celebrity, is certainly not, you know, someone who comments on random things on Twitter, but is someone who actually invests in getting major films made that are designed to be viewed in theaters uh, with the success of Top Gun Maverick, uh, surprising people in terms of how much it dominated the box office this year. You had Hollywood getting a severe case continuing to suffer a severe case of sequelitis of the top you know 15 films that uh you know in in terms of box office gross this past year uh the only one that you'll find that isn't based on uh, either a prior movie uh or uh you know intellectual property from the world of comic books something of that nature uh, is Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, uh, which was a, a pretty crazy movie in itself uh, particularly for Tom Hanks makeup uh, but really, it's kind of an indictment that we can only make these types of movies these days. But at the same time, uh, the box office performance really proved in a number of these cases that we are no longer as beholden, perhaps, to China as we once thought with a number of these successful uh, box office films uh, not requiring the success in Chinese markets uh, that others have. You had, uh, you know, in the world of comedy, SNL remained completely unfunny. Um, and you had uh, a re- return, I think, to form of a number of comedians, uh, including uh, Dave Chappelle, who you know did uh, phenomenal work this year, along with many others who are you know certainly not down with the woke agenda when it comes to uh, their approach to comedy. They're about making people laugh, uh, not just clap. Uh, and then you had all sorts of other bizarre developments, such as the Kardashians deciding out of nowhere to get skinny. Uh, you had runs on Ozempic here at the end of the year to as people tried to work on their weight loss. Uh, and you had the trend, the disturbing trend of uh, uh, buccal fat removal, which is when uh, it seems like a lot of celebrities who uh, ought to be comfortable with their faces decided that the real problem that they had was they, they needed to get the fat in their cheeks taken out of their face. I'm sure that there will be no long-term negative consequences uh, for that. But I think that one of the stories that, above all, we need to consider as being the dominant story from 2022 among all of these other developments is the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk. It obviously played out over the course of months. There were uh, legal considerations involved. There was back and forth. There was tension. Uh, there was uh, you know, a sort of joking approach that he took. People asked whether it was going to be serious or not. 
I just remember, you know, talking about it the very first weekend after this purchase uh, was made public or this attempt to purchase was made public. And, and the question on everybody's mind was, is he serious or not? Of course, it turned out that he actually was serious. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, with the purchase being made, we have had uh, a, a significant uh, series of ramifications from it, not just for the platform which obviously attracts outsized attention from the world of media as opposed to the world of normal people who mostly don't have time to spend on uh, such a narcissistic platform, but also ramifications in terms of the knowledge that we gained by virtue of Elon Musk making this purchase, uh, a knowledge that I think we should delve into in this episode because I think it's worth spending some time on all the different things that we've learned. We'll have uh, coming up in the next couple of hours, a number of good guests, including uh, Howie Kurtz uh, and Matt McDonald from The Spectator to talk about Elon's unique year and the way that he had such an impact on the way that we talk to each other and the way that we are perhaps reconsidering the relationship between government and these social media platforms and, of course, the media's role in terms of essentially playing hide the football, uh, you know, when it comes to all of these different uh, things that should be of major consideration to them when it comes to free speech rights and to the intrusion of government into our conversations and the public dialogue about their decisions. I certainly think this is the most important development of the year overall. It's going to be one that I think has waves that uh, flow into uh, the future years and and future political clashes uh, in ways that I think are uh, you know we are only beginning to understand. But the biggest takeaway of all, from my perspective, is that if it is true, as has been reported, that the White House, at the direction of the President of the United States, pressured Twitter in order to silence people who were critics of their policy agenda, particularly when it came to their choices about COVID, that this is something that rises to the highest level of concern that we possibly can have about the use of government power in a direct way to influence American conversation and to violate the First Amendment and our ability to speak honestly with each other without the intrusion of government. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to Fox Across America. We'll be talking about this Twitter story, Elon Musk, and many of the things that spool out from it over the course of the next hour or so. And I thank you for listening. We'll be back with more right after this. Jimmy Fallon. He's got great charisma. Yeah. He's always dressed fantastic. He has what I call it. This is Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. And we're back, Fox Across America. I'm your guest host for today, Ben Domenech, and we're going to be spending some time talking about one of the biggest stories uh, to come out of this year, uh, the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk and the follow-on effects of that purchase, one of which obviously was gaining access to a lot of information about the technology platform that we did not yet have, Uh, things that oftentimes serve to confirm suspicions that a lot of critics of of the platform had about the way that moderation worked and the way that the government worked hand-in-glove in order to try to influence the conversations that Americans were having. One of the people who's been reporting on this with access 
access provided by Elon and his team uh, to the internal discussions that were happening at Twitter at the time is Michael Schellenberger, uh, the author and journalist, uh, familiar to you probably mostly for his reporting about energy policy in America, uh, you know, his pushback against the type of, of uh, climate craziness uh, that he has indicted uh, and his uh, argument in favor of nuclear energy. But he's also someone uh, who is, a, uh, in his own right, an investigative journalist and someone who has delved into what went on inside of Twitter. Here's what he had to say uh, about his findings from the Twitter files the other day. Cut seven. I think what was so threatening about what we did is that we just presented a series of facts. Uh, we weren't theorizing at all. I wrote uh, the Twitter files part seven, and I just laid out the pattern of information, some of which we did know before, but some of which we didn't. We did know that the FBI had Hunter Biden's laptop in December of 2019. We knew that the federal authorities, the FBI, was raising the alarm about Russian interference in the 2020 elections. We now know that they were specifically raising concerns around a Hunter Biden-related leak in October before the elections. We also saw the Aspen Institute was involved in raising the alarm. And I think most significantly, we saw former FBI general counsel, who had become Twitter's deputy general counsel, making the strongest argument by far of any Twitter employees for censoring Hunter Biden's laptop and ultimately discrediting it, in the, discrediting it in the minds of many voters, including myself, who did not take it very seriously when the New York Post reported on it in mid-October 2020. You know, you are going to see, obviously, a response from the new Republican Congress to this and the incoming uh, likely chair of the Oversight Committee that could look into this uh, is James Comer of Kentucky. Here's what he had to say about the problems with the FBI. That's cut eight. It's very disappointing to see the FBI continue in its downward spiral. What they called misinformation was their own words. What we have <laughs> revealed from the Twitter dump is their own words, their own emails. Uh, not to mention the whistleblowers have come forward and told us additional information that the public will be hearing very soon. Uh, and what they call, who they call conspiracy theorists are conservatives in the media and members of Congress. So the FBI has a huge problem. It's only getting worse. And their confidence level, not only among uh, Republicans in Congress, but among the public, is at an all-time low. You know, I think one of the things that we have to deal with, though, is that even with this oversight, there has to be fundamental change within the FBI in order to have any kind of optimism about their ability to avoid doing this same kind of thing again. You know, when we see the impact on conversations that are happening concurrently with uh, future elections, particularly the next presidential election, we're going to assume that the FBI's hand is up inside that puppet when it comes to a lot of these Silicon Valley companies. You're listening to Fox Across America. I'm your host for today, Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more right after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share.
And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your host, Ben Dominich, and Jimmy Fail is a chair today. Uh, he is out there causing trouble somewhere. Again, if you see a, a, a man uh, dressed only in his underwear uh, lighting fires in your backyard, just be kind to Jimmy. He's just trying to stay warm. Uh, I am joined right now by Howie Kurtz, host of Fox's Media Buzz and a media uh, critic and expert in his own right. Howie, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me today. Thank you. Yeah, everybody in America is an expert on the media, but I actually get paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that makes you a super expert. So I wanted to talk to you about this uh, story that I've been uh, talking about today as being, I think, one of the major takeaways from 2022, uh, which are the revelations that we've learned since uh, the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk, ones that frankly are very concerning to me about uh, not just uh, some of the decisions that were being made inside that company, which, you know, you can certainly take issue with, but by the way that the government was affecting those decisions and playing a role in in who uh, was being essentially, you know, uh, deplatformed or who was being silenced, uh, including accounts that they wanted banned uh, and the like. Uh, And I'll get some reaction to you uh, from uh, from some of the details on that in a minute. But just first overall, what was your take? I remember speaking to you the day after, I believe, we were on together, the day yeah. after Elon kind of announced that he was going to do this. And our attitude was one of skepticism, <laughs> uh, that, that maybe this was all a joke to him. Are you surprised that this ultimately even happened in terms of his purchase? Uh, no, because Elon Musk is so unpredictable. I mean, from a sheer journalistic point of view, he is the gift that keeps on giving. He bought it, then he didn't want it, then it was too expensive, then he blamed the bots, then he was forced to buy it. Uh, and now it seems like he's kind of just trying to keep the thing afloat. But, you know, I, I've, I've described him as an erratic genius and lately more erratic than genius. At the same time, uh, you know, this guy's an incredibly creative entrepreneur, and he was a hero to the left when he was building electric cars. And now the mainstream media hates him because they perceive him as a conservative where he says he's battling for free speech. Mm-hmm. And he's not even a conservative. I <laughs> right. mean, really, by what other, for Biden. Other, other than any sort of uh, definition that's just sort of if you have a lot of kids, that means you must be a conservative. Yeah. <laughs> and and instead, in, in in I think that when you look at him, you see a guy who – is naturally contrarian and doesn't have to abide by a lot of the normal constraints that people do. And yet he seems to be legitimately concerned about some of the things that were that were uncovered here. I want to run through just real quickly this uh, thread from uh, David Zweig, who is a, uh, a reporter, a stringer for uh, Barry Weiss's publication mm-hmm. and uh, and did the most recent kind of, of Twitter files. Uh, reporting uh, on uh, the 26th of December. Here's part of his thread. When the Biden administration took over, one of their first meeting requests with Twitter executives was on COVID. The focus was on anti-vaxxer accounts, especially Alex Berenson. In the summer of 2021, President Biden said social media companies were, quote, killing people for allowing vaccine misinformation. Berenson was suspended hours after Biden's comments and kicked off the platform the following month. He then sued and then settled with Twitter. But in the legal process, Twitter was compelled to release least certain internal communications, which showed direct White House pressure on the company to take action on Berenson. A December 2022 summary of meetings with the White House by Lauren Culbertson, Twitter's head of U.S. public policy, adds new evidence to the White House's pressure campaign. Uh, Culbertson wrote that the Biden team was, quote, very angry that Twitter had not been more aggressive in deplatforming multiple accounts. They wanted Twitter to do more. And the interesting thing here is that They wanted, according to this uh, internal discussion at Twitter, the White House wanted people to be banned. They wanted people off the platform, whereas Twitter was sort of trying to 
find some happy medium where people could stay on, but maybe their stuff didn't get uh, as much play and that kind of thing. They were trying to figure out a way through this. It seems to me that what the White House was doing here was just exceedingly, exceedingly inappropriate, if you know, unethical, if not illegal. What is your take on, on this sort of thing and understanding that we're only seeing that side of the story? Well, right? first of all, isn't it amazing, Ben, that uh, this is not deemed even to be a story mm-hmm. by many of our uh, colleagues in the mainstream media? I mean, this is absolute proof. Now, look, when the Trump administration was winding up its tour, it pressured uh, Twitter as well. But this is so much worse and so much more chilling for me as a journalist because they're specifically targeting particular people, whether you're a fan of former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson or not, these other multiple accounts. And they're very angry. Well, that's a lot of pressure when you mm-hmm. consider the clout of an incumbent administration. And now, you know, the White House says, well, you know, it's a private company, can do whatever they want. But it turns out it's not just Twitter. These meetings were being held with the Facebook and, mm-hmm. and, and other uh, social media sites. But it is... Amazing to me that the incumbent administration feels like it's even appropriate to try to get people banned, and we still don't have the full story. No, we don't. And one of the things that I think is is so telling about what you just said there is I think we all understand that there's pressure that comes from uh, government leaders, you know, that they, they don't like to see these things. They might exact pressure. But when it comes to sort of saying specific people need to be taken down – that really feels like it enters into – you've got a nice tech company there. It would be a shame if it got broke, wouldn't it? It's like you a mob script, yeah. Yes, exactly. And that – and that, I mean, I don't know how as a tech executive, especially one, you know, uh, you know like Jack Dorsey, who was obviously, you know, in charge of Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, back in the day, how someone would even resist that kind of pressure internally if they really said, look, the White House is demanding that we do this, and we don't know what they could potentially do to us if we don't. Yeah, and you know, the the thing that jumps out at me because public opinion evolves over time is how in order to get somebody banned or shadow banned, which was another technique used in this particular case where uh, I've talked to one of the doctors involved, former Harvard Medical School guy, who didn't know at the time that nobody could like or reshare what he was saying about COVID vaccines. Um, the fact that they could just declare it to be misinformation. Oh, well, according to who? Well, according to, you know, the whims of the left-leaning people who happened to run Twitter at that time. And so uh, this guy was arguing, the one I'm talking about, who's now on leave from Harvard, that um, you couldn't uh, – it didn't make sense to be a real drastic effect on children if they were locked down out of schools for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Well, now that's pro- practically conventional wisdom. Yes. But at the time, it was enough to get you – um, hauled into, you know, the detention room at Twitter, <laughs> and nobody's allowed to play with you. <laughs> well, that's – and that's the thing that I think is so infuriating about this is because people people who don't pay attention, I think, to the news the way that you and I do on this kind of constant sure. basis, in other words, healthy, well-adjusted people, they still remember the concept, you know, sort of in the early days of this that, that there was going to be some kind of trade-off here, and a lot of them, normal people, were saying – well, wait a minute, my kid doesn't seem to be doing as well or my kid, you know, is, is having problems with this. I remember, you know, hearing this from friends and, and saying, you know, is anybody even, you know, concerned about this? And yet you see kind of the people who were speaking for them in this forum, educated people like people who, you know, come from Ivy League universities. They were the ones who were, you know, becoming they were raising their head up out of the crowd and getting uh, shut down because they were saying something at odds uh, with the prevalent uh, and dominant uh, agreement at the time, which frankly has to be considered to be motivated by partisanship on some level. 
Yeah, I can't disagree with that. I'm also troubled by the incredibly cozy relationship between Twitter and the FBI, which I'm sure you've talked about. I mean, there's just so much going on here. And, you know, Musk is getting a lot of backlash. And he's made some mistakes, such as, you know, kicking journalists off for things they did uh, before he even took over Twitter. But at the same time, this misinformation business is is insidious. It's a club that could be wielded wielded against anybody. And if you care about uh, free speech, then you need more free speech to counter it. Mm -hmm. Scientific views... uh, evolve uh, with when people debate things. When you only have one side, it's not a debate. You know, the uh, the FBI thing, which you just brought up, is of significant concern to me as well. You saw uh, in terms of the traffic back and forth, FBI agents who were just flagging, in, in some cases, more than 100 accounts uh, and just saying, you know, these look bad to me, basically, take them down. Or, or people who were, and this was kind of interesting, they were using Twitter's terms of service uh, to go after various accounts and basically saying you're not enforcing your terms of service mm-hmm. uh, sufficiently enough when it comes to these different people, that to me is of incredible concern. And I would I would feel that way regardless of who was in power in the White House or who was atop mm-hmm. the FBI, because you know certainly you wouldn't want to see a situation where you know a Donald Trump administration uh, under you know a DOJ led by you know Jeff Sessions or by Bill Barr was going around and saying. You've got to X out all these accounts because they're saying things that we don't like. You know, uh, consider, for instance, uh, the idea of of everything that was going on during the summer of George Floyd and and BLM. If they were going after them and saying, you know, you've got to shut down this conversation because we don't like it using any justification that they found. I mean, that's a huge violation of the way that Americans think that our discourse ought to work. So, you know, and for lots of people, Ben, who've never been on Twitter, who no interest in Twitter, they probably don't grasp how much this affects them because because so many journalists are on Twitter and because yes. we're self-obsessed. Uh, it drives a lot of news stories. It also deci- it's kind of sets the boundaries for what's acceptable to debate or not debate. This comes back to the Hunter Biden laptop story. And this COVID, these COVID revelations are like the Hunter Biden laptop story, except with life and death consequences. Yeah. So this is really serious stuff, uh, and it just amazes me that the media are so partisan these days. It's like, well, this would hurt Joe Biden, and really, where's the proof? And like, I don't even think they've read a lot of these documents. I have. I, well, I agree with you on that, and the seriousness in terms of which they'll actually read this stuff, I yeah. think, is, is pretty low. But let me ask you this. Going forward, we obviously have this problem, which is that there's so many Americans who, you know, have this, they, they may have this vague awareness that the FBI or that or that, you know, the powers that be are influencing the conversation. We're going to have another presidential election here that's basically starting up right now. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, you already have the former president throwing his hat in the ring. How do we have any faith that this isn't something that just repeats itself again in terms of behind the scenes influence that we only learn about, you know, years after the fact where the intelligence community, whether it's the FBI or others, you know, basically put their finger on the scale of the American discourse that we think is happening in in a free space, in a public space online. Well, uh, faith in all institutions seems to be crumbling. And it really, I think, a lot in this case of Twitter, which really is indispensable to public debate and all this big business about, oh, we'll just go over to this other site. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. good luck with that. Um, (laughs) Elon Musk has to show that he... He is not especially thin-skinned, that people can criticize him without retaliation, and that he really does believe in free speech. He's done some damage to himself lately on that score. Even his own allies say that. Um, But if he is transparent about it, and we don't have the secret shadow banning where you don't even know. know, It used to be if they wanted to go after you, they had to, uh, you know— 
break into the Watergate or you know, tap your phone. <laughs> now they just get your IP address, yes. and you know, you're just sitting there like, oh, I don't know what's happening. So uh, I think a lot of it is on Elon Musk's shoulders, but a lot of it really is also on the mainstream media because this clearly has decided that they used to love Elon Musk, now they hate Elon Musk. It personalizes it. It makes it easier to talk about and even joke about, but it doesn't solve the problem of can we actually have social media networks that people think are giving everyone a fair shot at the debate. <laughs> that was a pretty funny little aspect. I don't know if you saw this one of the of one of the accounts that the FBI had targeted as being a source of Russian information where the the Twitter person in question tracked down like it's some like 20-year-old in a house in Carolina or something like that. It's just saying these things just because you disagree with them doesn't right. mean that it's That's who runs the world now. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Howie Kurtz, uh, what do you have coming up uh, on Media Buzz this weekend? I'm glad you asked because it's New Year's Day and we will be working. And we'll be talking a lot about the George Santos story. Uh, this is not just a story about a guy who got elected to Congress, presumably, uh, by falsifying every conceivable aspect of his resume. <laughs> but he lies about his mom. He's like this zelig yeah. figure who just shows up in different places, and uh, it's really a test of the system. He's now got like 72 investigations, and I think it's an amazing story. Yes, I do think it's amazing, and I also think it's an amazing indictment of media in the sense that it's revelatory, that people still put faith in local media yep. and, and local journalism to, to unveil these types of things. Two Metro reporters for the Washington for the New York Times, excuse me, <laughs> and uh, you know, the New York Times maybe would have done a better service if it had been able to break this story before the election, but obviously that didn't happen. Yeah. Howie Kurtz, thank you so much for taking Taking the time to join me today, and you can check out Media Buzz uh, this Sunday on Fox News. Thanks so much. Great to see you, Ben. Fox Across America with uh, Ben Dominich today. We'll be back with more right after this. Critics are calling it the show of the year. Personally, I think we got hosed on that call. You're listening to Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back, Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominic, your guest host for today. I want to continue our conversation about Elon Musk in the next hour, but uh, just one more point on this um, Twitter activity that I think is of such concern and that needs to have the attention of the new Republican Congress when it comes to learning about the activity of our FBI, DOJ, and intelligence services. The, the role that they played here is clearly a beyond what I think a lot of us thought. You know, when it comes to their assignment, you know, they're supposed to be looking at criminal activity. That means, you know, of course, uh, things like child pornography, things about, you know, uh, uh, drug trafficking, uh, human trafficking, uh, et cetera, you know, terrorist activity and organization uh, and the like. Uh, but that's not what we saw when we lock, looked at the uh, internal discussions that they were having uh, with Twitter, and it's certainly something that I think is of concern, not just when it comes to Twitter, but when it comes to Google, when it comes to Facebook, when it comes to Instagram and other platforms. Let's do a cut 10. This is Matt Whitaker, the former acting attorney general. Clearly, the, the relationship was to suppress free speech. I mean, ultimately, it was under the guise of uh, reducing foreign influence, uh, I guess, in American elections, especially in 2020. But you just saw the DHS, DOD. Uh, CIA, FBI, and, 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 and state governments, and the Democrat National Committee all had an, a door into Twitter that they could moderate uh, accounts that they disagreed with or felt were, were uh, too effective in communicating 
uh, an opposing viewpoint to what they felt should be on the platform. And, you know, Twitter was clearly the right hand of uh, the federal government in moderating speech. So the thing that I'm curious about is, you know, Twitter is one platform. Uh, it's a social media platform where people are, you know, sharing short, different ideas, you know, in uh, in low character counts, you know, links that they're promoting, et cetera. People don't really live on Twitter unless they're, you know, journalists or they're crazy people. Um, it's it's just not the platform that most people use. Most people obviously use other platforms. They use Facebook, of course. They use Instagram. But Google is the omnipresent platform that really everyone uses, especially when it comes to searching and finding material, news, uh, and you know, looking at, at stories that are, that are breaking at any particular hour. And I think that one of the big questions that we have to be asking is, how much has Google's search results, when it comes to news or when it comes to finding other evidence about other issues, been influenced by these various intel and uh, law enforcement services? How much have they downranked or made links disappear? made it impossible to find various things. I don't know how often you, you know, are looking for something and you get a basic zero Google result, but it actually happens to me quite a lot when I'm looking for something specific and I have to really drill down to try to get the thing that I'm looking for. It would not surprise me to learn that the FBI had a very similar relationship with Google that they had with uh, Twitter, that they were able to reach into uh, the kind of, of uh, link promotion and uh, link demotion processes that Google has in order to hide various stories that they deemed to be problematic and that those stories oftentimes were completely legit- legitimate ones for Americans to be discussing. You're listening to Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more in the next hour right after this. Live from everywhere USA, it's Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your guest host today, Ben Dominich. Happy to join you from Washington, D.C., where I am uh, sitting in for Jimmy Fela, who is out there causing chaos, I'm sure, about your communities and uh, creating all new horrible Christmas stories for you to use to frighten your children into what your life could be like if you followed the pattern of one Jimmy Fela. Uh, I want to spend some continued time this hour talking about what I believe really is going to be the long-term major story from 2022, which is Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter, his uh, change in personality from being one who was uh, really a darling of the left in so many different ways, uh, both for what he was doing with Tesla and uh, certainly his past support uh, for people like Barack Obama and uh, for Joe Biden. Uh, into what he is now, which is uh, almost a countercultural figure, someone who is, you know, applauded by people who are more in that dirty category of uh, Joe Rogan listener or Fox News viewer. I want to uh, start by just sort of uh, pulling in a couple of comments that Elon has made recently about what he found when it came to uh, the purchase of Twitter uh, and uh, what he discovered along the way in terms of of, uh, things that he learned and his approach and how it's changed. Let's do cuts one through three. Well, it's been quite a a roller coaster, which uh, obviously you've um, 
witnessed and been on the roller coaster as well. Yes, the Dramamine. I've taken the Dramamine. It's it's quite up. Yeah, I mean it's exciting, uh, but I, I think it sort of <laughs> has its highs and lows to say the least. Um, but overall, it seems to be going in a good direction, and um, you know we've, we've got the the expenses reasonably under control, so the company's not like on the in the fast lane of bankruptcy anymore. And we're uh, releasing features uh, faster than Twitter's history at the same time as having contained the costs. You know, I think that one of the things that we can uh, do when it comes to assessing uh, Elon's approach to Twitter is keep in mind that he's not really approaching it the way that someone would if they were just playing things safe. Let's do cut two. I'm a big believer in, like, you want to look at the uh, net output. Um, So it's sort of like... uh, you know, what's the batting average? Uh, if, if, you're, if it's like baseball, the, the point is, is not that you like, uh, you know, hit the ball, but it's like, well, how many home runs you get and how, like, what, what's your actual, your slugging percentage. Yeah. Slugging percentage. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you've got to swing for the fences. You're going to, you're going to, you know, strike out a bit more, but we're going to swing for the fences here at Twitter. Um, and we're going to do it quickly. And one of the things that he obviously discovered when he showed up there was that there were a lot of people, frankly, who weren't really a part of anything essential to the company. They were there for a lot of other different reasons that had nothing to do uh, with technology. Cut four. I observed uh, part of this where yeah. you basically asked the question, who here is critical and who here is exceptional? Yes. I mean, it's, so, I mean, it really, the what the criteria is trying to apply, and obviously you're not going to be perfect, um, if you're moving fast and, and there's a lot of you know, people you're talking about here is that anyone who is exceptional at what they do, where the role is critical, uh, they have a positive effect uh, on others um, and they are trusted, meaning they put the company's interests before their own, uh, should stay. Those are all comments that he made to the All In uh, podcast, which uh, focuses on Silicon Valley and technology. Uh, the, the thing that's interesting to me about this is that you know, Elon's very candid about uh, both, you know, sort of mistakes that he might make or uh, or the sort of quickness that he's using when it comes to approaching things and trying to fix them as rapidly as possible, which is something that we're not necessarily used to when hearing from a CEO and certainly uh, may not be the kind of thing that helps with uh, his relationship necessarily with investors. But it's also something that seems to be born out of the fact that he's tired of the BS. He doesn't want to deal with this in the same way that I think – uh, prior people did where they tried to put the best spin on decisions that were being made, regardless of whether they participated them in, in them or not. You know, one of the things that we saw during uh, the closing era of the 2020 election, when you had this Hunter Biden story breaking, was uh, that Twitter executives such as uh, such as Jack Dorsey were coming out and basically spinning this as being the right solution, even when uh, we found out that they didn't actually have the kind of role that we might have expected in making such a significant call. Uh, and that's something that I think was surprising to a lot of people about what we gathered from the Twitter files. But there's also something else that I think is going on here, which is that When it comes to uh, Elon Musk's approach to a company like Twitter, he's bringing an outside-the-box view because he doesn't have the same type of buy-in in some fanciful, utopian vision of the way that conversations ought to occur. If you look back at the comments from Dorsey and from Mark Zuckerberg in particular about what they thought they were doing and building uh, when it came to Facebook and Twitter, 
a lot of it sounds very utopian, very, you know, optimistic about the way that humans will interact with each other. The idea that they are, quote unquote, making the world a better place, as they say all the time uh, in HBO's Silicon Valley, a very pointed, darkly comedic critique uh, of the actual place. You know, it's this self-delusion about the thing that you're building and the ramifications that it's going to have for the people that use it. And I think that one of the things that Elon is not trapped with is any kind of suppositions of, about the nature of this platform or its behavior. Instead, he wants to lean toward free speech in a greater way than those who came before. Now, what we should keep in mind is that Elon is not a conservative. As much as he's going to be framed as a conservative uh, by the media critics that he has, um, described as being some kind of you know, defender of or allowance for uh, white supremacism or you know, somebody who's going to allow for all sorts of maniacs to take over uh, the platform that he's the head of, that's simply not the case. Uh, he's not actually a free speech absolutist. We know this because of the approach that he's had thus far. But we also know that he's not someone who is you know, ideologically uh, influenced by the same people that conservatives are influenced by. He's naturally contrarian. He has more loyalty to the tech side of things and to innovation uh, than he does to any particular view of the American founding or the Federalist Papers or the Constitution. Uh, and that is something that I think makes him an ally in the case of those who want more freedom, uh, more ability to speak uh, without having uh, the possibility that they would be crushed by the powerful uh, tech phobes uh, when it comes to uh, Twitter or by uh, the, the media when it comes to cancel culture. But I do think that one of the things that we should keep in mind through all this is that he is an ally and not one of us. That uh, Republican tweet that went out a while back of uh, El Kanye, Elon Trump, is something that I think is informative in the sense that since it came out uh, and has since been deleted, you know, Kanye West obviously went absolutely crazy, engaged in all sorts of anti-Semitic theory, theories and, you know, said horrible, horrible things uh, that uh, only seemed to uh, get, uh, get worse and worse the more platforms that he went on. I don't think that you uh, are used to seeing Alex Jones feeling uh, that uh, someone said something too controversial, but that, that, that's certainly what happened uh, when that played out. And I think that when you see uh, that type of thing happen, you can understand that, you know, as much as someone like Kanye might seem like, you know, an ally in certain respects or, you know, someone who, you know, can be looked at as being uh, sympathetic to the conservative cause or to the Republican cause uh, with uh, certain aspects of what he's uh, endorsing at various times, that he's not someone who can be considered as a conservative or as someone who's part of that uh, community consistently and or motivated by ideology as opposed to uh, who he has beef, beef with at a certain moment. So one of the things to keep in mind with Elon is that this same thing is true, that he's not someone who uh, you should be putting your faith in in terms of delivering something that's perfect, but that what he is useful for in this case is that because he breaks with the overall dominant uh, leftist media narrative about the way that the world is um, and the way that it ought to be, that alone makes him someone who can be helpful in certain respects. 
in dis- in helping us discover the truth about the way that these platforms behaved, uh, in helping us discover the truth about the way that the American FBI behaved, and in helping us to come to new knowledge about uh, the fact that our tech companies are more in bed with so many of these entities uh, than we ever thought possible. That the number of shared employees in terms of former FBI, uh, former CIA people who are working at these companies is much higher than I think any of us could have guessed, and that the level to which that they directly affected the moderation patterns and the assumptions and decisions that were being made in terms of uh, very partisan and controversial and important aspects of debate within American society were completely outsized and were very much, I think, uh, designed to crush the ability of people to speak freely, uh, to go back and forth, to have any kind of conclusion or friendly conversation with people. Instead, they were designed to shut people down before those conversations could ever play out. And what are we left with? Because of that, we're left with frustration. We're left with feeling like the people who you know were on the other side of a debate, they had advantages because they could shut down those who disagreed with them. They could shut them down even if they came from Ivy League institutions, even if they had you know, impressive resumes, even if they had far more expertise than the people who were going after them and the critics that were running into them uh, and declaring their tweets or their posts to be outside the realm of anything that should be allowed in the public square. Look, this is a serious problem, and it's only going to become more serious as we approach this next presidential election. And we see all of these uh, storylines and important, uh, sub, uh, important subject matter that ought to be, you know, uh, within well within the realm of political debate back and forth between American voters, uh, between the constituencies within each party. That that's going to be something that once again the FBI and potentially other aspects of law enforcement uh, seek out and seek to shut down because they find it to be potentially dangerous to their aims or what they believe the aims of this country ought to be. Uh, don't overestimate the possibility that we are going to see, uh, you know, Americans completely ignore this once again and, and uh, you know, completely ignore the, the lessons that we've learned from these past couple of years in terms of the way that these uh, government entities act. As much as there is institutional distrust, there's always this natural uh, inclination on the part of Americans to say, well, this isn't possible. They couldn't possibly stoop to doing this type of thing. You know, that would be completely irresponsible. It would be completely out of the norm. I can't believe that these government entities would do something like this. And yet you see it in black and white in their own words, in their emails, to Twitter, demanding that one account after another be taken down, regardless of the fact that they have no actual proof that anybody in regards to any of these accounts represents foreign misinformation, or influence on our elections. Instead, it's just their gut saying, we don't like what this person's saying, we would like to get rid of them. That's what we've seen time and time again, whether it was the memes that they went after on Facebook that came from Russian sources, or whether it's the memes that came from Americans that were supporting Trump and opposing Hillary. They are treating both sides equally, as if they both are representative of something that uh, is illegal and is, uh, you know, has to be shut down for the sake of democracy. When in reality, they're willing to set democracy on fire in order to get what they want in terms of the ultimate result. You're listening to Fox Across America. I'm your host for today, Ben Domenech. We'll be back with more right after this. It's the show that never hits the books. I love the poorly educated. You're listening to Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. 
And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your host, Ben Dominich. Happy to join you today and happy to have you listening as we go through some of the top stories of 2022. And we're focusing at this time on Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at bdominich. I want to uh, talk for a moment uh, before we get to our next guest about uh, some of the things that I think uh, continue to bother me about this story and how much it says about not just Twitter, but other entities within Silicon Valley that have to raise questions that I think deserve to be looked into by the incoming Republican House. Let's go to cut five. As a former FBI agent, to continue working with the FBI to censor everyday Americans is truly outrageous. And every taxpaying citizen in this country should be really disturbed and infuriated right now that that happened because they were trying to censor everyday Americans, what we were hearing, what we were reading on Twitter. And it's outrageous what they were doing. It it really is. And, you know, you said there were 80 FBI agents, 80 just at Twitter. I wonder how many were censoring Facebook and Google, too. You know, I think that that comment from former Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, you know, uh, herself someone who has obviously uh, spent a career in law enforcement, should be of the of concern for a lot of Republicans who ought to be asking this question, not you know what happened at Twitter, but what happened, what is happening at these other entities, equally powerful if not more powerful in terms of influencing American conversation. What's happening at Facebook today? What's happening at Google? What's happening when it comes to TikTok's influence? Obviously, we've seen uh, the invasion of of our country by so much of the priorities of Beijing and the Chinese ownership of TikTok through its entity, uh, which is enormously popular, particularly when it comes uh, to younger Americans. And I think that what we're going to see in uh, the coming months and years is that the influence that has happened uh, at Twitter is not unique to Twitter, that there are also people who are going to be, you know, uh, having that same type of influence uh, within the you know, halls of Google, within the halls of Facebook, you know, within entities like TikTok, et cetera. And that's something that I think uh, is of major concern regarding our conversations within all of those spaces uh, that are going to affect American politics, who wins and loses elections, and so many more uh, factors when it comes to the conversation that we have as Americans today. We have the illusion uh, oftentimes of a public square where we are allowed to discuss these issues, go back and forth, and achieve some type of resolution. When in reality, this is a an entity, uh, a skewed public square, one that has been skewed according to the whims and wishes of major powers that be, whether that be corporations, whether that be political movements, the Democratic Party uh, or the FBI, whether it be, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter and the associated groups with them or enormous, you know, frankly, uh, nonprofits that have uh, major roles to play in partnerships within all of these spaces where they are able to have uh, a significant role in determining what is allowed uh, for us to debate as Americans, uh, what is allowed in terms of our discussion. And that the way that they hedge that conversation, the way that they prevent us from being able to go in various uh, directions, uh, is something that has huge ramifications in determining what is acceptable for the bounds of debate and what is not. That's something that is a huge uh, factor in terms of determining the uh, the structure, the the uh, the gatekeeping, the fencing around uh, the various conversations that we have uh, every year as Americans uh, in determining where we ought to go, what we ought to do, or what the policy priority ought to be at a particular moment. 
And it can skew not just our own visions of it as Americans, but it can skew the visions of the journalists who are supposed to be covering it, where they think that everyone's talking about something, and it turns out nobody is. And it can skew the perception of politicians, who often have to turn to these various entities in order to have uh, the kind of feedback or get the kind of feedback uh, that they would like to receive from their constituents. They view these platforms in terms that perhaps they should not as being uh, you know, entities in which their constituents can make themselves heard. Maybe those constituents are being silenced when it comes to the actual issues they would like them to prioritize. You're listening to Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominich, your host for today in Jimmy Fallon's seat. We'll be back with more right after this. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominich, your host for today. You can follow me on Twitter at BDominich. I am happy to be joined by my colleague at The Spectator, Matt McDonald. He's the managing editor of The Spectator. You can follow him on Twitter at MattJPFMcDonald. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks for having me, Ben. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, Elon Musk and his participation in what I believe to be one of this year's top stories in terms of his purchase of Twitter and what we've learned about the way that that platform and uh, our government worked in tandem in a number of different disturbing ways. But I also wanted to get your take on a new depiction of Elon Musk that is uh, on uh, people's streaming devices uh, this week, and that's uh, Ryan Johnson's follow-up to Knives Out, uh, The Glass Onion. I know that you've had the time to sit down and, and take a gander at it. What did you think of his uh, the Musk-like portrayal of one of the main figures in the storylines by Edward Norton? Well, um, obviously Christmas is a wonderful time for uh, for mystery. I uh, I watched this uh, at home in at home in the UK where we've got a long-standing tradition of watching, you know, Agatha Christie or Poirot or whatever, whatever at uh, Christmas. And, you know, Netflix is smart to release this now. Um, to, but obviously to, to bring that kind of genre up to uh, the modern times, there's this fortuitous portrayal where the main sort of, uh, you know, villain or uh, central antagonist of, of the film is this uh, tech billionaire played by Edward Norton. Uh, as a kind of amal, you can view it as a sort of amalgam of Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, uh, but there's there's potentially a bit of uh, Jeff Bezos in there as well. Um, and obviously, the central the central mystery of the film is is framed around him inviting a uh, a number of other celebrities and influencers to his private island to play a murder mystery game. Um, where the, uh, you know, the, and then Daniel Craig's detective doing what I'm fairly sure is a fairly suspect uh, Southern accent, uh, <laughs> shows along and reveals that actually this may not be a game and there could potentially be a plot on his, uh, on his life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good, fascinating kind of send-up at, at Christmas, particularly it's, it ends up being fairly fortuitously timed, obviously. I think the film went into production in mid-2021, the early the setting of the film is 2020. Like it starts in, it starts during COVID with people wearing face masks, which you know, thankfully now feels like quite remote uh, and far away. Um, but yeah, I mean, the as a as a portrayal, it's a fairly you know damning 
uh, look at, at the billionaire class. Not particularly original. Look at the billionaire class. Like uh, he does, he does kind of everything that you would expect a billionaire to do, as far as buying ridiculous art, having his sports car stored on his roof, and obviously having his own island and wanting to hang out with celebrities uh, all the time. And yeah, I mean that's so that it it really you know plays up those sort of worst aspects of uh, Elon Musk and and you know. Power, uh, sort of power in the elites and how those things all tied together. Uh, here's what Ed Norton had to say about this the other day when he was asked about it. Cut 22. Remember that we made the movie in the summer of 2021. So, oh. so this week's geniuses who have revealed themselves to be idiots and frauds um, were, not, were not in the summer of 2021. Um, but, uh, but 2021 had a lot of them as well. Yes, it did. And, um, and uh, men and women both. And, and let's just, I, I think Ryan Johnson, who's the wonderful writer and director of this, we, we decided very early on that we were trying to create kind of the ubermensch of tech Illuminati narcissists, you know? Yeah. And, and we, we took the best, worst qualities from literally dozens of, of yep. people. Yeah. And if yeah. you, actually, if you look closely, there's kind of Easter eggs pointing at this guy and that woman right. and, yeah. and this thing. It was, it's much more fun to create than, than well, to just satirize one person. So I want to ask you, after watching Glass Onion, do you think that Elon would approach... Uh, a murder mystery environment the same way that Ed Norton's character does? Or do you think that he would actually be better at figuring out what's going on? I think Ed Norton's billionaire is, is phenomenally charismatic, which isn't something that you necessarily see come across uh, with Elon Musk. Like he's, he's kind of got a different type of kind of charisma and intelligence, um, which I think, I, you know, I, that actually potentially would serve Elon better in that situation. You know, he seems to have like a, a, a more analytical mind than the than the antagonist of of this film. Um, yeah, I mean, the Ryan Johnson as a inspired director and writer, I think, is uh, you know that's obviously you've got to pick up your director when you're promoting your film. As far as the as far as the bluntness of the the kind of analogy and and of the writing, like it's it's like performing surgery with a battle axe, frankly. Uh, it's, it's, it's as cloying and obvious a, a characterization as there could possibly be. You know, I, I, that's the thing that frustrates me so much about movies these days, which is that I, I don't like movies where I watch a trailer and I feel like I've figured out uh, that's the bad guy, that's going to be the good guy, and that's and it's just based on casting. Uh, that's that's never something that you want to feel when you're going into a movie. But let's talk about the real life uh, Elon for the moment. You know, it's it's been of interest to me that you know, as much as we're talking about him and his purchase of Twitter. Uh, that there are other areas where the same questions kind of arise, you know, meaning that it's not like Twitter is the dominant source for most people's news. It's perhaps the dominant source for most people in media's news, uh, given how much right. they pay attention to the platform. But, you know, uh, other people use Google, they use Facebook, and it kind of raises all these questions about, you know, what is the American FBI, uh, what are the intelligence services, the law enforcement services doing in terms of their interaction with Google, with Facebook and the like. What are your thoughts on, on that as a storyline that, uh, that we, needs to be dug into more in terms of learning the w relationships that are uh, obviously constantly happening behind the scenes? Goodness, yeah. I mean, I, I share your um, consideration that perhaps we as people in the media care more about this than average people do, but there are kind of hallmarks of it which are, interesting noteworthy and, and worth looking into for everyone um on our podcast last week i spoke to emma joe morris who's the reporter at the new york post 
who broke the uh, Hunter Biden laptop story, which was subsequently, you know, uh, it got the New York Post's main Twitter account blocked. Uh, Facebook uh, limited the circulation of it, all because, uh, as we now know, uh, thanks to, you know, subsequent reporting from uh, various different uh, journalists, many of whom have been poring over Twitter's internal uh, communications and documents at the behest of Elon Musk, we now know that uh, the secu- uh, various different security forces, whether that was the FBI or the uh, you know, uh, the, Office, the the Director of National Intelligence, had been speaking to people at Twitter Safety, which is a, a nice, uh, a nice almost pseudo Orwellian way to talk about <laughs> the guys, the guys, the guys who will censor, um, able to suppress or take stories out of circulation or take certain things out, topics out of uh, circulation. Uh, they they kind of briefed them uh, the month before that story broke about a possible uh, story emerging about, uh, you know, candidate Biden's son and his business arrangements, all this kind of thing. And they, this, uh, I, for me, this was the most uh, of the, I mean, it's impossible to pass this story because, it, you, you know, you, it's released in a, you know, 50 tweet thread every four days or so. And so it's hard to like, actually put, pick out what the, shocking details are the most shocking detail for me is there was this aspen institute kind of conference in in september 2020 where elvis chan uh who's you know one of the guys in the field fbi field office in san francisco has been speaking to yoel roth who's the head at twitter safety and base and they've been walking through this kind of game scenario where maybe hunter biden has done something wrong and so it's really kind of just prompting and priming <laughs> the people at twitter to then react incredibly uh, negatively when if a negative story about Hunter Biden that does then arise, which it does a month later. Um, so the way that Emma Joe put it when I spoke to her on the podcast was that, uh, you know, it's not government censorship. It's almost just government outsourcing its censorship to these uh, private companies. Um, and, it's you know, we often... But given the fact that it's tech and not media, that throws up a whole different kind of dynamic to it. Because, you know, in communist russia say you've got like the state newspaper pravda which is controlled by the the russian communist party and therefore and therefore you know that there's censorship going on and you know and you know there's propaganda but here the uh the relationship between the security state and uh big tech uh it's with big tech and not with the media and therefore Mm. many of these tech companies have fought for you know the last 20 years or so to not be treated like the media and uh and to have you know protection under section 230 uh which is basically saying you know the the tech companies like facebook and twitter are not responsible for things posted on their platforms because they are they are not publishers but then if they are making editorial decisions at the behest of uh, government agencies that raises all those questions up again, and I think will potentially. It's the kind of thing which uh, House committees are going to start to look to when the House changes hands uh, next. Yeah, week. I mean, I, I think that you're completely right in the sense that you know so much of what uh, has been their claim about Section 230 uh, is that you know we're not publishers, we're not making publishing decisions, and yet when you read over these uh, internal discussions that they're having, they're very clearly making publishing decisions, even editorial decisions, down to well, this tweet is okay, but this one isn't, and you know, can we find a way to not have to ban this account, or do we need to ban this account. And to me, I think that the the big question sort of uh, going forward is, you know, are we going to have any confidence that the next time that we have a major discussion or a major story like this, a late breaking story as the Hunter laptop was, that this same thing 
isn't going on already. Meaning, you know, the Aspen Institute uh, issue that you wrote, wrote, uh, raised up, which was obviously planned by a number of people who, you know, uh, were had recently been working for the FBI and, and were, you know, participating in a lot of internal discussions. They had the kind of information that could flow into their awareness that this was a potential storyline. And then to have them kind of run through it in a game theory-like fashion to both predict the behavior of uh, the entities involved but also to kind of nudge them in a direction in terms of, you know, uh, priming the pump for them to react the way that they did. Uh, that's of huge concern. And we're probably not going to learn that that kind of thing has happened until after, you know, some future election, which has to be uh, something on people's minds. I'm not sure that it is yet, though. Yeah, I think all of those are valid concerns. I think, you know, you it's, it's just another institution uh, which public trust and faith is going to decline again, like obviously we've had public, uh, you know, this uh, decline in trust in government. We have a decline of trust in the media. Uh, this is big tech. So this is just, you know, a little maelstrom, uh, like a little Christmas buffet. We can pick and choose all of them uh, and find reasons to be disappointed. Um, yeah, it's, it's, the question is, like, where do we go from now, right? What's the thing? I, I think this has been the case with decline in institutional trust across all the board. It's, it's asking the question, well, what do we do to win people back over mm-hmm. again? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we ask that question. I think we ask that question in the media not often enough. I think we ask it at The Spectator fairly often, which is why our magazine's worth subscribing to. Um, but the gov- in government, you know, and, in, and at these, these tech companies, it's hard to say, it's hard to look at some of the same talking heads talking about this issue or ignoring this issue and brushing it under the carpet and then trying to think and turn around. Well, look at two, three years, these people are going to be back on the ballot and they're going to be staring at the public with a straight face, asking to be taken seriously. And I think a lot of uh, uh, people, like, you can cherry pick a different moment from from someone's congressional term where you look back and think, well, that was a single reason why I would never trust you again. And uh, these things, these ha- things happen in every news cycle. And you don't even, you don't even need to have a particularly good memory to to have that emotional response to those people in the government. And I mean, I guess we're getting to a position where you're going to have to start cleaning house, right? And uh, sunsetting some of the less trustworthy politicians, retiring some of the um, more uh, partisan talking heads on television news. And um, and bringing in the the new era and the changing of the guard because otherwise it's, if it if it looks like the same old stuff then um, I can't see the problem getting much better. Yeah, the fact that so many of those people who went out there and put their names on that letter uh, saying that you know uh, that the Hunter Biden laptop the was Russian misinformation the had, all, of Russian had all the hallmarks, all the hallmarks, <laughs> which was then cited by Joe Biden uh, in a debate. Uh, they're all still on TV. They're all still collecting checks. Uh, and yeah. uh, and that definitely doesn't help when it comes to institutional faith. Matt McDonald, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join me. You can find his writing at thespectator.com. Uh, appreciate it very much, Matt. Thank you. It bears the hallmarks of good journalism. <laughs> Absolutely. All the hallmarks. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to Fox Across America. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to the hottest show in the country. Our country is in serious trouble. This is Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominic, your host for today. 
You can follow me on Twitter at the Dominic. I'm the editor at large at the Spectator, and happy to be joining you all from the seat of Jimmy Fela, who is out there causing havoc all across the country. I'm sure at this moment in a wonderfully jolly way. Uh, we've been talking about Twitter. We've been talking about Elon Musk. We've been talking about technology. And one thing that I don't want to escape notice is the news this week regarding TikTok, which was uh, encouraged in terms of an internal memo uh, from uh, the uh, uh, from the, the uh, chief administrative officer of the House of Representatives on Capitol Hill uh, that all lawmakers and staffers uh, should delete the TikTok app from their House-issued phones. Uh, this follows on, obviously, uh, things that you might have seen in terms of the news, which include the omnibus spending bill, including a provision uh, banning TikTok on uh, most federal government devices. That was a provision authored uh, by Josh Hawley, uh, the senator from Missouri, and passed in a bipartisan, unanimous fashion. Uh, there does seem to be a unanimity when it comes to TikTok that it is dangerous, uh, that it is uh, something that allows the Chinese to spy not just via that app, but on all of your other communications uh, and materials that you have on your phone. We've even heard encouragement from some cyber experts that if you've been using that on your phone, that you ought to get a new phone uh, that does not have it downloaded on. Uh, that's up to you, obviously. But ByteDance, its parent company, has been sharing information about uh, critics, uh, journalists, about uh, you know uh, government figures and the like, according to uh, numerous different reporting that has come out over the past several months. And we've already seen, of course, a number of different governors ban uh, the app, uh, including Christy Nome, Larry Hogan, uh, and uh, Greg Abbott. The security threat that TikTok poses is something that I think the uh, incoming Congress is obviously going to investigate more. Uh, but it's only, I think, uh, the one aspect of what is concerning about TikTok. TikTok has had a corresponding effect uh, in numerous uh, tracking uh, and studies have, have uh, illuminated this over the past year on the attitudes, particularly of America's teenage girls. We see trends that come out of it that flow into their conversations and behavior, trends that include you know, a, an increase in, in terms of eating disorders, an increase in terms of uh, the level to which they are aware of gender politics and perhaps, uh, you know, identify as transgender uh, and influence on, on their behavior in lots of different respects. We've also seen, of course, the fact that in China, TikTok is used in very different ways, uh, projecting oftentimes uh, the encouragement to those citizens who are using it uh, to engage in scientific or or math-related educational experiences and the like. This is just one more aspect of the way in which China has sought to use culture to invade our lives, something that we're all already familiar with when it comes to Hollywood, when it comes to their attitudes towards purchasing American property and more. It's something that deems uh, importance and we ought to be aware of going forward into the coming year. I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more of Fox Across America right after this. Live from everywhere USA, it's Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your guest host for the day, Ben Dominich. You can follow me on Twitter at BDominich. Feel free to send along any reports that you have of uh, wandering miscreant uh, Jimmy Fallon and whatever he's up to today. I hope he's having fun. I want to bring your attention to a piece that you may see going viral a bit. 
today. It's gone, uh, it gotten a lot of attention in the last 24 hours or so. Uh, from The New Yorker by Emma Green. Uh, the title is uh, pretty surprising in itself. The Case for Wearing Masks Forever. And uh, I will say that this is not an article in which uh, Emma herself is advocating for this, but she is profiling a group of people who definitely want that to be the case. Uh, I'm going to read a few excerpts from this. Last December, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced it was going. It was shortening the recommended isolation period for those with COVID-19 to five days. You may remember this point. It was also an announcement that came along with uh, a decrease in the level of time that people ought to quarantine and a number of other things that were kind of rolling back the recommendations. This is a year ago, obviously. Mindy Thompson Fullilove, a professor of urban policy and health at the New School, was livid. From the beginning, Fullilove was skeptical about how, of how the federal government handled the coronavirus pandemic. But these new recommendations from the CDC, she said, were flying in the face of science, unquote. Not long after the announcement, she sent an email to a listserv called The Spirit of 1848, a progressive public health practitioner listserv. Can we have a people's CDC and give people good advice, she asked. A flurry of responses came back. What emerged was the quote-unquote People's CDC, a ragtag coalition of academics, doctors, activists, and artists who believe that the government has left them, artists, of course, has left them to fend for themselves against COVID-19. As government, schools, and businesses have scaled back their COVID precautions, the members of the People's CDC have made it their mission to distribute information about the pandemic, what they see as real information, as opposed to what's circulated by the actual CDC. They believe the CDC's data and guidelines have been distorted by powerful forces with vested interests in keeping people at work, oh, heaven forfend, and keeping anxieties about the pandemic down. Oh, that sounds horrible. The public has a right to, to a sound reading of the data that's not influenced by politics and big business, Full of Love said. How things come full circle. No one is in charge of the People's CDC, Emma Green's reports, and no, one, no one's expertise is valued more than anyone else's. Oh, I'm sure that's the case. The problems of the pandemic and its response are rooted in hierarchical organizations, Mary Jamanis Saba, a filmmaker, and one of the volunteers told me. Roughly 40 people come to each weekly meeting, but many more are involved. The group sends out a weekly weather report put together by a team composed in part of doctors and epidemiologists summarizing data about transmission rates, new variants, and death rates. They publish explainers on testing masks and ventilation, among other topics, uh, typically with a call to action to call the White House or call your congressperson, demanding free tests and treatment for all. Uh, they, on their website, they recently posted a guide for safer gatherings, which recommends that all events be held outdoors with universal, high-grade masking. The organization has nearly 20,000 followers on Instagram and prides itself as a resource for various groups, including people who are you know, compromised and activists who are trying to lobby their local government for more COVID restrictions. It's got uh, a lot of backing, by the way, by a number of different health-focused philanthropies, including the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which gave the group $150,000. Fullilove uh, would neither confirm nor deny whether there are any current CDC employees involved with the People's CDC. But in a recent webinar, Edgar Rivera Colon, who often serves at the, as the group's meeting facilitator, claimed that there had been at least some moral support. Quote, we have comrades that are within the CDC who are saying to us, go ahead with your bad selves. Wow. So let's talk about this a little bit. The interesting thing is that they have, you know, a, a ton of support from a lot of these different leftist and progressive constituencies, nonprofits and the like. 
They have a number of different disturbing quotes in here from participants. There's a second story of the pandemic happening, which is not about it's time to get back to normal, Greg Gonzalez, a Yale epidemiologist and activist, told me. Normal for whom? Who's getting left behind? I think that's where the people, CDC, and others are trying to stake a claim and trying valiantly to make an impact. Throughout the past six months or so, Gonzalez has watched with dismay as big public health organizations have lined up behind the White House's relaxed COVID policies, even as more than 300 people on average die of the virus each day. Gonsalves and like-minded colleagues had assumed that after Joe Biden was elected, they'd feel more aligned with the government's COVID policies. That's not what ha- that's not what's happened. Quote, it wasn't just Trump. It wasn't just Biden. Gonsalves said there's a struggle going on right now for the soul of public health. This is the thing that I think is so interesting about this. They thought that Joe Biden was just going to be a permanent lockdowner forever and ever. I think that there's still a big part of this White House that would like to go in that direction, would like to have vaccine mandates, would like to have the kind of, of you know, overarching uh, lockdowns that we had, would like to keep schools closed. Certainly there are major constituencies of the Democratic Party that are still in that same position. But, of course, the politics of it and the ability of the Biden administration to advance this uh, is really limited by a certain thing called the Constitution. We've seen that when it comes to a number of their different mandates and approaches. Uh, Of course, it's also a major problem when it comes to the the steps that he's taken with emergency justification, such as the student loan forgiveness and the like. You know, one of the things that is so interesting about this is that they're angry about uh, the levels to which uh, the CDC is now using maps that they think uh, don't fully tell the story of how bad things are. They uh, you know, are pushing back against CDC guidance as not being severe enough when it comes to uh, demanding that uh, gatherings be limited in number or that they be outdoor, that they have uh, mask mandates be mandatory. Um, and, uh, you know, here's just one ex- aspect of, of how they think about this. The People CDC strongly supports mask mandates, and they have called on federal, state, and local governments to put them back in place, arguing that, quote, the vaccine-only strategy promoted by the CDC is insufficient, unquote. Group has noted resistance to mask is most common among white people. Lucky Tran, who organizes the coalition's media team, noted left leftist, recently tweeted a YouGov survey supporting this and wrote that a quote, a lot of anti-mask sentiment is deeply embedded in white supremacy. So you are a racist in addition to uh, being someone who now follows what the CDC guidance actually is uh, if you're going in that direction. The thing that's really Funny about this, of course, is that all these people uh, during the initial era of, of, of COVID were also the people who were saying, follow the science. They were pounding their fist uh, rhetorically when it came to their presence on social media that we needed to follow the science. And yet, as we've learned more about said science, about what it actually means for us, about what it can and can't do for us in terms of preventing the spread of an airborne illness like this, uh, the science has turned against them. And so they would like the science to change. They would like it to only be in accordance with what they would like it to be as opposed to uh, the kind of outcomes that have frankly led us as Americans to new conclusions about how wrong we were that we really should have adopted in all likelihood the policies of other nations around the world, including the vast majority of Europe, where these uh, shutdowns and lockdowns did not happen or were very short in terms of their tenure where children were being able to go back to school very quickly, where you did not have the kind of uh, ramifications, negative ramifications uh, for uh, school children and for those who were trying to continue 
uh, their education or who are trying to get back to work that we saw here in America, obviously influenced by those who wanted those lockdowns to continue all the way up until the point where Joe Biden could get elected. Look, this is not a situation where I think that you uh, see them only targeting those who were on uh, the left. And this is one interesting point of this. Do you remember Leanna Wen? She was briefly, uh, you know, the head of uh, uh, Planned Parenthood before being pushed out. Obviously not someone who is on the right. Uh, Leanna Wen shows up in this piece, uh, a professor at George Washington University School of Public Health and former health commissioner of Baltimore told me, Emma Green, that there's a distinction between parent, patients who have trouble recovering from a bad COVID case or who are experiencing lingering systems and the, symptoms and those who are truly debilitated afterward. That's not one in five patients, she said of the latter group. The People's CDC rejects any suggestion that long COVID is less than a crisis. Wallace told me that Wen is a, quote, quintessential minimizer who has benefited professionally by advocating, for example, to scale back mask mandates. By the way, that's something that Wen only did relatively recently. She is widely distrusted by progressive activists who work in public health. Earlier this year, a group called her, calling her views on the pandemic, quote, unscientific, unsafe, ableist, fatphobic, and unethical, circulated a petition to get her kicked off a panel at the annual American Pulp health, uh, Public Health Association meeting, where Wen won one of the top prizes only a few years ago. So even if you agree with people ideologically on so much, if you disagree with them when it comes to what they believe the science ought to dictate in terms of government top-down, dangerous, and life-adjusting mandates for Americans who clearly have moved on from these points and are no longer abiding by such mandates, who are in mass rejecting them and are not going to go backwards, they're not going to be convinced to do this over again. That's been clear for years now. I just think that you know, it says something about the ideology of those people who believe that the we- the government ought to be weaponized against those who disagree with them on policies uh, when it comes to public health. It's something that is obviously a, a major development in recent years where you saw public health weaponized through the form of all manner of government mandates uh, that people were supposed to abide by uh, that, you know, took on in many cases, you know, force of law that forced people away from their schools, their churches, their communities, uh, their colleges, their workplace, uh, and uh, disrupted so many people's lives in ways that we now deem to have been either foolhardy or very limited in terms of the help that it actually offered uh, to those who you know had a risk, serious risk of of death from COVID. Now I think we have a better picture of things, uh, and I think that if we'd been paying attention to uh, a lot of the scientific data from an earlier point, this is something we would all have concluded much earlier. But now that we know the truth, there are still some people who are sticking their heels in the ground, refusing to move, and insisting that they have you know, not just moral superiority but scientific superiority over anybody who disagrees with them. I wonder what these people are going to do if people ignore them. I feel like they're only going to get more desperate, they're only going to get more aggressive, uh, and they're only going to try to double down on using government policy in terms of influencing the decisions of the Americans who disagree with them. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we should be more hopeful than that. But I think that this nature of busybodiness, this nature of wanting to just scream at people who don't approach life the way that they do, is going to be omnipresent for us for the coming years. People are invested in it the way they're invested in a religion. 
I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to another edition of Fox Across America. I'm in for Jimmy Fallon, and we'll be back with more right after this. A show so good, it's hard to describe. It's not a matter of, it's a matter of, you just, oh, in the club, I mean, um, as, as, and, uh, you know. It's Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. You know, so, uh. And we're back, Fox Across America. I'm your guest host for today, Ben Dominich, in Jimmy Fallon's seat. Uh, for this last hour, and we have a caller, Reese from Sheridan, Wyoming. I believe you have something to say about these COVID mandates. How you doing, Ben? Make it doing well. <laughs> Good to have you. Good. Hey, listen, I just wanted to say, you know, there's a lot of crazy things going on in the world today, but us on the right side, we can't give an inch. We can't give an inch because they'll take a mile. Um, so if we do give anything, then we're just setting ourselves up for failure. We got to stand firm on our principles of low taxes and, and everything, everything that the, the far right stands on that got well, Donald Trump elected. Well, Reese, let me ask you this. You know, the, the pressure I think is going to come, uh, you know, as we, as we see, you know, just for example, you know, the Republicans who are elected to the House, they're going to take away proxy voting. They're going to make people actually show up again to cast their votes. And already some of the Democrats are, you know, raising their hackles about this because they've all been voting remotely, working from home, you know, and now they're going to claim, as I think we can all expect, that, you know, this is dangerous uh, to get rid of this COVID era policy. So what do you say in response to that? We need people voting at the ballot box, not mail-in voting people to actually show up because if you don't have people show up that just opens the doors for a lot of uh, uh riffraff so to speak <laughs> yeah i know i think i think one of the things that we should definitely apply is is a, a real skepticism when it comes to people who you know aren't willing to show up to cast their vote whether that's uh, true of of people you know who are out there when it comes to to elections that we have and uh and then also i think you know, on Capitol Hill, you know, this is part of the job that they're they're paid to do. Thanks, Reese, for, for giving me a call. Uh, you know, look, I think one of the things that we have to understand, though, is that the people who are going to push for these types of policies aren't going away anytime soon. You know, I think there was an assumption on the part of a lot of independent voters that when Joe Biden got elected, that a lot of these policies were just going to vanish overnight that you were going to have, you know, a number of, of people sort of say, oh, well, we continued that, but now that we've gotten rid of Trump, we're going to, you know, uh, you know, have some kind of normalcy. And that's not been the case. You know, you saw the Biden uh, White House resisting the idea that you should get rid of the vaccine mandate, for instance, for members of the U.S. military. You saw their resistance uh, when it came to their support for a lot of the policies uh, that uh, have been advocated for by education teachers unions and uh, Randy Weingarten and her power within uh, the Democratic coalition is obviously, you know, unquestionable in terms of uh, how much of an impact those teachers and their presence within that coalition has on the policies that they set, you know, oftentimes that put, uh, you know, their potential interests or the potential that they have for getting financial uh, support out of our taxpayer dollars ahead of the interests of the children who are actually in the classroom. And so I think, you know, to Reese's point, giving an inch on those uh, COVID mandates and the like uh, is something where 
there's there's no real halfway there. I don't think there's a half measure there. I think you have to hold the line on the way things currently are because if you don't, if you start letting things you know back in uh, that you know were absolutely crazy when they were tried tried two years ago, and now we know and have the proof that they were actually crazy from around the world and from our own experience. Then I think before you know it, you're back to the state of Michigan saying that you can't buy seeds because somehow that's going to you know lead to increases and in spikes in COVID. Look, it's it's become a trope, but we've been saying it. I've been saying it for a year and a half that we have to learn to live with the danger of this. That we have to learn with the fact that it's going to be an omnipresent and seasonal thing that we have to battle, just like we battle the flu, just like we battle influenza, just like we battle so many of the other things that affect us seasonally here in America, have for decades and and will continue to. Um, But uh, going in the wrong path, taking the wrong uh, approach uh, toward toward our policies is not something that anyone who calls themselves a, a limited government conservative should be doing because it absolutely invests way more power in the authority of unelected bureaucrats who will hide behind uh, the idea that they're doing all of this uh, in defense of health, uh, when in reality it's almost uh, always, I think, going to be a a measure of power and how much they are able to influence the activities of others uh, and in taking, I think, some very extreme and negative courses uh, that have long-term ramifications, particularly for children, uh, that put us all at higher risk of um, negative ramifications for all of us as a country. We'll be back with more of Fox Across America right after this. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your guest host for today, Ben Dominich. You can follow me on Twitter at BDominich. I'm happy to be joined now by Mary Harrington. She's a contributing editor at Unheard. She has a piece that I think is worth your time. You can find it at unheard.com, Why Society Still Needs the Family. Mary, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having me. So I think that at a time of year where we've spent so much time, many of us, around our family, uh, this is a good time to remind ourselves why they're actually a force for good and very important, uh, lest we be disabused from that notion ever, after having to spend a great, uh, qu- uh, quite a good deal of time around uh, perhaps our relatives. It's very, I think, <laughs> timely to to remind ourselves that this is actually really good uh, to have the family uh, for a number of reasons. What inspired you to write this piece? Well, um, it was partly in response to a book which I've, I've discussed somewhat in in the piece um, we published this year, which um, makes the case for abolishing families, abolish, yeah, family abolition, which has been a project of the Marxist left for you know a good century and a half now, um, and it sort of it's updated that case for abolishing the family and make, makes the argument that this will we will not free ourselves, our species will not flourish until we can free ourselves of this technology of privatization. And in the author's view, um, the the family is is just a means by which people hoard the resources of uh, money or safety or, or, frankly, love for themselves, instead of spreading it around and making it possible for us all to be, I don't know, I assume one sort of big, happy, universal family. And my argument is really just that 
um, this sounds, this all sounds very utopian in theory, but the trouble with utopian projects is that they just don't take human nature into account. And the more the, the, the more committed you are to utopianism, the more you're likely to end up like Stalin, you know, murdering millions or you know, committing other atrocities. And so I've called this I've called this a utopian atrocity writ small, trying to abolish well, the family. I think that one of the things that is uh, really lost in terms of our discussion about family, uh, and especially considering there's so many uh, forces that seem to conspire against it or, or view it as an antiquated institution, uh, is that they they leave out so often um, the best things that the family has to offer and that intact family units really provide in terms of uh, strength, not just to the unit itself, but uh, to our communities, uh, stretching beyond the household and into the ways that our neighborhoods work and the like, um, and that it's through that atomization that comes in the if the family is cast aside uh, that you have uh, the kind of you know not just chaos uh, but all sorts of things that lead to the encroachment of of government into our our private lives and into our private decisions. You use one Absolutely. example. Yes, uh, you use one example in particular of this, uh, the, the increase of uh, euthanasia in Canada as being an example of this. Tell me a little bit about the connection there. Okay, so so what, what I, I, I suppose the fundamental thing to bear in mind is that you could kind of make the case for not needing the family if you're strong. If you have money, you have social connections, you have, I mean, you, you know, you don't, you don't need to, if you don't need to rely on anybody because you have resources, you know, you can deliver your food and hire security guards and what have you. It sort of doesn't matter how, how badly everything goes wrong around you. If you've got resources, you'll kind of be okay. But where, where it falls over as an idea is, is when it's, it's for the weak. And, and fundamentally, at the beginning of life, we're all weak. You know, in the womb, we're at our weakest. Um, and, and at the end of life, we're all weak. And if you, if you, if you argue that, in fact, we don't, we don't have an obligation to care for, the, for those around us who are weaker, um, then effectively, well, what you're going to end up doing is, is not opening a space for everybody to be freer, or rather you're going to open a space for everybody to be freer, but also you're going to, you're going to make it possible for people to shirk their obligations to, to people who really can't sort themselves out, who really can't, who, who really don't have the resources to look after themselves in, in the event of an emergency. And there, fundamentally, you're talking about the, the, the newest lives and the oldest lives, you know, because at the end of, at the end of life, as at the beginning, we're, we're fundamentally weak. And, and, I've, and I suppose really what I'm doing, although I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't really spoken about abortion in the essay, um, it's kind of, it's there in the background. And I think you can draw a very straight connection, as Jill, Jill Filipovic, the liberal feminist, did recently on her blog, um, between between the, the the liberal feminist defence of abortion and and she's arguing that in fact it follows from that that we need to make a, a, a liberal feminist defence of euthanasia um, because if you're if we're saying that you know it's unacceptable to kill a vulnerable life at the beginning it's it, it, it's it's self evidently you know that you you can see how that that logic extends straightforwardly to the end and and by by the same logic you know the <laughs> the people the people who are trying to prevent um, euthanasia from becoming legal or more socially acceptable will also be, be extending that logic backwards into into restrictions on abortion then you know you can see very straightforwardly how the two how the two connect to one another um, you know if you're somebody somebody who's at the end of life or is critically ill or is otherwise unable to access resource uh, unable to access care 
um, may find themselves, as is increasingly um, well, you know, there are increasingly well-documented cases of this in Canada, which now has, I think, the world's most permissive euthanasia regime, where, in fact, this isn't just empowering people who are entirely in possession of their faculties and would otherwise be perfectly able to take care of themselves um, to end their own lives with the assistance of a doctor. What it's actually doing is providing a pathway for the Canadian, for Canadian society in general to shirk any obligation to care for those who are, who are weak and vulnerable. So people with, with terminal illnesses are un, who are unable to fight Canadian health bureaucracy are instead being shunted into ending their lives with the assistance of a doctor or people with terminal illnesses who don't have anybody to care for them, or people who are, who are facing homelessness with some chronic de- degenerative health condition, which would otherwise be entirely livable if they, had, if they had greater support around them. So in a sense, what it does is it, it underwrites can, can Canadians' freedom to continue being selfish and atomized, because it, in the last count, anybody who's too vulnerable to live without the assistance of a community and doesn't have a community you know in, instead of in, instead of being a, a reproach on the Canadian on Canadian society and and an in, in, inducement to, to form more strong more strong and robust community bonds um, Canada in a sense can collectively just shrug its shoulders and say well you can always access medical medical assistance mm-hmm. in dying mm-hmm. so and that, so and that really to me the, the logical end, the, the logical <coughs> endpoint of, of Freeing ourselves from the obligation to look after the weak and dependent is is mm-hmm. killing unborn babies and it's killing old people who are sick. How did we reach? How did we? How did we reach a point where the idea of the word burden became so ubiquitous when it came to uh, either the older and infirm uh, or the young and the helpless? Because uh, just historically, in terms of of humanity's history, you know, this has not been the dominant way in which we. We viewed uh, the you know the opportunities to raise young ones or to to care for the for uh, uh, you know older citizens. Certainly, it was it was not something that was you know the dominant opinion in the West uh, for uh, quite a long time. It seems not you know so backwards. It depends. It depends how far back you go, Ben. Yes. Um, because actually, you can you can draw you can draw a very straight a, a very straight comparison between where we're heading and the where and where the West was prior to the arrival of Christianity. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's very straightforwardly downstream of, of de-Christianizing the West. I mean, in, in Roman times, you know, Rome and, and Rome was a great civilization in many respects and on many metrics. Um, the, the, the Romans made some remarkable achievements. However, their attitude to the sick and the vulnerable was very different to ours um, because they... they um, it was it was routinely the case that unwanted babies would be left just exposed by the side of the road to die, and that was considered it was considered socially acceptable. I believe I think it was up to ten days after the birth of a baby, um, the paterfamilias um, was within his rights to say no. I I, I refuse to recognise this baby as, as a member of my family. Um, you you may now abandon it by the side of the road, mm-hmm. and that was just that that was just within within the rights of the family patriarch and and the. And the beginning of the end of that was when Christian radicals, as they were at the time, would would take these babies in and raise them, Um, which began began a whole – that that really was the beginning of the story of Christianity and and of um, an entirely different relationship to to the weak and the helpless. 
and the, the the foundling the, the homes for foundlings were were connected to churches in the beginning um as were as were most of the early hospitals and and you know and that, so so right right at the beginning of the the trajectory of the christian west um the it, that that's been inseparable from our our understanding that the weak should be should, our owed compassion and our owed help um, Talk to me. As we, as we seem to be leaving leaving that behind in the rearview mirror, you know, very, yes. <laughs> pretty much immediately we find You're ourselves um, to, to an returning, older, returning more savage, very, very much more, yeah, older, more brutal, very, very Roman attitude to yeah. to the to the sick and the weak. Talk to me for a moment about uh, the attitudes of of feminists toward this, because you know, to me, you know, part of the nature of family is about the maintaining the obligation. Of, of father to child, of father to mother. And, you know, part of what has been split in the wake of, of you know, the prevalence of, of abortion and, and the like, you know, within the American experience in particular, has been that obligation. And, you know, uh, the, the expression goes, you know, here of, of um, your body, your choice, your baby, your problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and so right. it, in terms of the break there that's happened, it seems to have been something that is very bad uh, for uh, a a you know group of people who say that they ought you know they care very deeply about uh, the ability and the strength of of women within society. How have feminists react to these developments? Well, I think this is a this is a very complex question. Feminism obviously is, is fractious and full of internal arguments. You know, there are yeah. there are plenty of internal debates. Um, but I've often made the case that in fact the the turning point. Um, was the 1960s, and it wasn't an ideological one so much as a technological one, and that in fact, really, what 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 turned the tide in favour of this very libertarian understanding of um, how women could and should relate to our bodies and to our reproductive role, um, which is an, an immutable biological fact, right? And and the point the, the point where feminists stopped going back and forth on whether in fact we should prioritise care or whether we should prioritize freedom was the 1960s and it was and it came with the arrival of technologies which allowed us to control fertility and prior to that um there was there was a lot of very rich debate which is now mostly lost within within the women's movement over whether whether we whether we should be prioritizing the needs and interests of mothers um and whether that should be the 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 foremost um, aim of feminism for example through workplace protections or you know better better accommodations for women on factory floors etc and so on or even as eleanor rathbone argued um paying women to stay home um, when well, one of the things children. yes one of the there things are, that i, mean, I think are, i think we're going to see that mentions. that argument actually return quite a bit in the uh, I think, it's, I think it's very likely. I think yeah. it's very likely. But really, really, what turned the tide definitively in favour of the, the the women on the other side and said no, in fact, what we want is freedom on the same terms as men, um, mm. was was the the arrival of technologies which allowed us to kind of demand that. You know, whether it's mm. sexual freedom and you know sexual libertarianism, perhaps would be more accurate on the same terms as men, or or whether it was the, the ability to participate in the workplace. And all of those all of those are unavoidably downstream of being able to control our fertility. If you don't know if you don't know if you how many how many kids you're likely to have in the next ten years, you sort of can't really plan. Um, and so, so we're we're sort of we're 50 years into that technological revolution, and it's now pretty much taken for granted amongst sort of the mainstream understanding of feminism that you know the, the what, what people think feminism is is basically everything which has which has come after that technological revolution. And one yeah. of the things I think is very interesting at the moment is a new sort of post a, a new wave of women who are think who are looking at what we've what we've arrived at and you know what 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 has arrived in the wake of that and saying no actually this sucks this is not in women's (laughs) interests at all and who are and who would describe themselves as feminists but who who are really questioning 
you know, whether even even questioning whether whether in fact we should be relitigating the question of abortion is is abortion even in in, in women's interests? There's a huge there's a huge backlash amongst very young women against the against the contraceptive pill. You know, most of this isn't even among religious conservatives. You know, a lot of these are just fairly ordinary women who are who are put on the pill just as a matter of matter of course at the age of 15, and who come off it sometime in their 20s and they're like, holy moly, I just had a complete personality change, and this is much nicer you know what did you do to me what was that you know well i you, think yeah i think mary it? that this is going to be something that we see play out um in coming years in a lot of interesting I think that's uh, ways absolutely right. people um, people should check the, out your your article why society still needs the family at unheard.com they can follow you on twitter at move in circles mary thanks so much for taking the time to join me today it's a pleasure thanks for having me i'm ben dominic you're listening to fox across america we'll be back with more right after this you're listening to Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. I enjoyed it. It was an unbelievably interesting experience. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominich. You can follow me on Twitter at BDominich. I'm editor-at-large at The Spectator. You can find that at thespectator.com. Uh, I want to close out with some final thoughts uh, and teeing off something that I heard the other day from Michelle Obama. Cut 16. People think I'm being catty by saying this. It's like there were 10 years where I couldn't stand my husband. Yeah. You, you know? do say that. You <laughs> 10 long years. <laughs> and guess when it happened? When those kids were little. And for 10 years while we're trying to build our careers and, you know, worrying about school and who's doing what and what, what you know, I was like, oh, this isn't even. No. And that guess what? Marriage isn't 50-50 yeah. Yeah. ever, mm. ever. There are times I'm 70, he's 30. Mm-hmm. There are times he's 60, 40. But guess what? 10 years, we've been married 30. Wow. I would take 10 bad years over 30. It's just how you look at it, mm. right? And people give up for the set, five years. I can't take it. How it do you bad. know? I think that this is an interesting comment from Michelle Obama because one of the things that I think we all got used to when she and her husband were at the center of the discussion of American political life was how much their relationship was put on a platform, was talked about as being you know, sort of above uh, reproach, above any kind of critique, um, and it was something that was framed as being a perfect relationship. And yet she's telling us now that for 10 years, essentially, uh, she had really disliked her husband, particularly when they were dealing with young kids because she didn't feel like things were 50-50, things were even in terms of the level to which uh, they were invested in uh, that family life. Look, if she can feel that way, then anybody can feel that way. And one of the things I think that we have uh, too often in the way that we think about our own families is in some kind of perfect environment, one where the stresses of life, of day-to-day challenges uh, are not there for us or do not affect us. And that's a fantasy. It's not something that's true, even if you're as powerful of individuals as Michelle Obama and Barack Obama have been uh, in American life over the past several decades. Uh, And it's not true for normal people either. And particularly coming after the holidays, uh, after Christmas, when you have so many different family obligations, when you have so much going on in your life, uh, where everything just seems to be a to-do list uh, or a list of things that you've got that you uh, meant to do but haven't gotten to because of the different obligations that you have on a day-to-day basis, I think it's good to have some perspective on on this and realize that even the people who seem like 
they're put on a pedestal by the media as having perfect relationships, perfect families and the like. Even they face similar challenges uh, to all the different people who may have to go through periods of time uh, when they don't particularly like their spouse or feel like uh, things are being uh, particularly even. It's good to keep that in mind uh, and uh, and to have that type of perspective as opposed to falling into that trap that says that things that need to be perfect all the time. I'm Ben Dominich. It's been great to join you the, today and yesterday talking about some of these uh, stories uh, that round up the, the top of our list for 2022. I hope it's been inter- interesting and educational for you all. I'll be back tomorrow in the guest spot uh, for Guy Benson on his radio program. Uh, but until then, this has been Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominich, and thanks for listening. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.